Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Katani. In this episode, we're taking a look at how we learned to read the book of life, from the earliest days of DNA sequencing to the very latest futuristic technologies. Ever since we found out that DNA contains the instructions for life, we've been trying to decipher its contents. Most of us will be familiar with the DNA double helix. It's a twisted ladder where the struts up the sides are long chains of sugary molecules and the rungs slung in between are made up of pairs of four chemical letters called bases, usually known by their initials A for adenine, G, guanine, C, cytosine and T, thymine. The order that these letters come in the ladder is known as a DNA sequence and reading that order is referred to as sequencing. Just as a child learning to read starts with something easy like Sarah and Duck rather than War and Peace, science's efforts to sequence DNA started small. Throughout the late 1970s and early 80s, researchers began by reading the genetic makeup of viruses that attack bacteria known as phages. The first whole genome to be published, a heroic feat back in 1976, belonged to an RNA phage called MS2. It was just 3,500 letters long and contained only four genes, but hey, it was a start. Today, sequencing machines in labs around the world are churning out billions of base pairs of DNA data, and the very latest techniques even promise to allow us to read DNA inside cells. The cost of reading a whole human genome has gone from $2.7 billion for the first one to a few hundred, or even less, or even zero, depending on how you count it and who's paying. And as you'll know if you're a fan of this podcast, widespread, cheaper access to rapid DNA sequencing has revolutionised almost every aspect of life sciences research, from personalised medicine and clinical diagnostics to conservation, infectious diseases, evolutionary biology and much, much more. We've come a long way since those early days. So how did we get from there to here? Our story starts with a theoretical physicist called Walter Gilbert. Gilbert did his PhD at the University of Cambridge in the late 1950s, where he met James Watson out of Watson and Crick, who helped solve the double helical structure of DNA. After completing his PhD, Gilbert moved to Harvard University in 1956, where he soon became an associate professor in physics. Watson also moved to Harvard around the same time, and the two remained friends. They often talked about the exciting developments in molecular biology going on. After deciding that physics was having a dull moment, Gilbert began joining in with the experiments in the biology lab. Despite his education in theoretical physics, Gilbert wasn't afraid to return to the basics in his new field of biology, and he often bugged the students in the laboratory with his questions. He soon found he had a knack for experimental biology, and it wasn't long before he and Watson were running the molecular biology group together. Gilbert's work soon led him to a problem. He was working on regulatory proteins that control how genes are switched on and off in cells by binding to specific sequences of DNA near genes. And he needed to figure out the DNA sequence that a particular protein called the LAC repressor bound to. 
With no efficient DNA sequencing techniques available at the time, he relied on painstaking, slow and labour-intensive laboratory methods to work it out. It took Gilbert and his colleagues two years to decipher the 24 base sequence, which they published in 1973. Knowing that genes were thousands or ten thousands of bases long, Gilbert knew that if they ever wanted to have a hope of understanding even the simplest gene, they needed a quicker way to read DNA. In February 1977, Gilbert and his student Alan Maxim published an exciting new DNA sequencing method. Their technique, which quickly became known as the Maxim-Gilbert, or chemical method, involved labelling the ends of the DNA you want to sequence with radioactive phosphorus, and then splitting it up into four separate tubes. Each tube is then treated with a different chemical that breaks the DNA at a specific base in a small proportion of the DNA strands, generating a bunch of fragments of different lengths, each ending at one of the four DNA letters. A, C, T or G, depending on the chemical and exactly where they were cut. These fragments are then separated by size, running the four reactions side by side through a slab of polyacrylamide gel and visualised using X-rays to decipher the original DNA sequence. So, for example, the longest fragment might end at a T, the next longest at a C, the next at an A, the next at a C, and so on, telling you that your original sequence must have read T, C, A, C, etc, etc. The new technique slashed the time taken to read DNA from one base per month to sequencing hundreds of bases in an afternoon. But at the same time as Maxim and Gilbert were working on their method, other scientists were also coming up with their own solutions to the problem of rapid DNA sequencing. In 1975, British biochemists Fred Sanger and Alan Coulson published a paper describing what they called the plus and minus method of DNA sequencing. This basically involves eight separate reactions using DNA polymerase and various combinations of labelled bases to generate DNA fragments of different lengths that reveal the underlying sequence in a similar way to Maxim and Gilbert's method. Sanger and his colleagues managed to use it to read the first DNA genome, all 5,000 or so bases of bacteriophage Phi-X174, or Phi-X for short. Although it did work, this method was complicated, and quite hard to get your head around if I'm absolutely honest, so Sanger and Coulson teamed up with another biochemist, Steve Nicklin, to develop a simpler, faster technique, the chain termination method, which became known as Sanger sequencing. Similar to the plus and minus method, this technique uses DNA polymerase to make new DNA from a template, that's the stretch of DNA you want to read, set up in four separate reactions, each with one different radioactively labelled base, plus a mixture of all four bases left unlabeled. Importantly, these radioactively labelled bases have been modified in a way that means they can't have any more bases added after them. So, as the DNA template is copied, these modified nucleotides of a particular letter are incorporated at random positions, terminating the strand and resulting in fragments of different lengths with a known final letter. The four reactions are then run side by side through a gel, separating the fragments by size as before, allowing you to work out the original sequence from the fragments from their length and their final letter. 
Published at the end of 1977, the new technique quickly caught on. Fred Sanger and Walter Gilbert both took a share in the 1980 Nobel Prize for their work on DNA sequencing, and their two methods were quickly adopted by labs throughout the world. In a neat parallel with the war being fought at that time in the world of consumer electronics between Betamax and VHS video, the two methods battled it out for dominance in the early 1980s. But although Maxim Gilbert sequencing was initially more popular, in the end Sanger sequencing won out thanks to its simplicity and ongoing improvements that made it ever faster, cheaper and safer than Maxim Gilbert sequencing, which was eventually largely forgotten. Alas for Gilbert, this isn't the only time he's been pipped to the post in a biotech race. A few years earlier, he also lost the battle to become the first to produce synthetic insulin, a title that went to Herbert Boyer and the scientists at Genentech instead. You can listen to episode 11 from this series, From Genes to Bugs to Drugs, for more on that story. Although it was revolutionary, Sanger sequencing was also painstakingly slow in those early days producing about a 100 DNA letters at a time. Throughout the 1980s, researchers worked out how to use fluorescent dyes instead of radioactivity to label the end letters, and discovered more efficient ways of separating the different length DNA fragments. While these advances hugely sped up the process and made it possible to read sequences of hundreds of letters in a fraction of the time, the genomes of even the simplest organisms can run into many thousands of letters. So, how do you read it all and put it together? In order to read longer sections of DNA and decipher whole genomes, scientists developed a technique called shotgun sequencing, which involves chopping up DNA into random overlapping lengths, sequencing the sections, and then reassembling the code by matching up the overlaps to get back to the original whole sequence. A bit like a very complicated jigsaw. The method was used for the first time in 1981 to sequence the whole genome of a cauliflower mosaic virus, which contained around 8,000 base pairs. Increasing automation made decoding whole genomes quicker and easier. The first organism to have its whole genome read was the bacterium Haemophilus influenzae, published in 1995 and clocking in at just 1.8 million letters. Yeast followed in 1996, and the tiny nematode worm C. elegans in 1998. By then, the wheels were fully in motion sequencing the human genome, or as much of the three billion letters as was possible with the technology of the time. I was lucky enough to be a summer student for a couple of years in the mid-1990s at the Institute in Cambridge that bears Sanger's name, while the Human Genome Project was underway working right alongside the teams that were sequencing the mouse and pufferfish genomes. There was an incredible sense of excitement in the air that we were finally getting our hands on the tools that would enable us to start decoding DNA at scale and unlock a whole new world of biology. You can learn more about this incredible time from one of the researchers at the forefront of the Human Genome Project, Eric Green, in episode 22 from season 3, The Past, Present and Future of the Human Genome Project. By 2001, after a decade of work and billions of dollars, a rough draft of the human genome had been assembled. 
UK Prime Minister Tony Blair and US President Bill Clinton linked up by satellite to make the announcement, during which Clinton made the somewhat unscientific claim that, today we're learning the language in which God created life. And lo, the age of genomics was born. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzipped.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show? If everyone listening right now gets someone else to listen, and they get someone else to listen, then pretty soon we'll have the entire world covered, right? Although Sanger sequencing was good, it was still quite slow and cumbersome for a world that was now itching to sequence all the things. Scientists knew that if they wanted to take a leap forward in the speed of DNA sequencing, they needed to stop relying on synthesising DNA fragments and then looking at them afterwards, and start analysing the DNA synthesis process in real time, reading off each letter directly as it was added. In 1996, Mustafa Ronaghi, Matthias Ullen and Paul Nern from the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm introduced PyroSequencing, the first real-time DNA sequencing platform. In PyroSequencing, single DNA strands are attached to tiny beads in individual wells and nucleotides are introduced one at a time, together with DNA polymerase. If the correct nucleotide is introduced and is added to the strand, a chain of chemical reactions is initiated, resulting in the emission of light. The remaining nucleotides are washed away before the next one's added, and the process is repeated. Detecting these light emissions after adding a known nucleotide allows scientists to work out the sequence of bases in the entire DNA strand. So, for example, you add a bunch of A's. No flash. Wash them out and add T's. No flash. Wash and add G's. Flash! So you know the first letter in the sequence must be a G. Then you start the whole cycle again to discover the next letter. It sounds like a bit of a faff, but by this point automation was making pyrosequencing possible at scale. Ronagi, Ulin and Naren licensed their technology to 454 Life Sciences and in 2005 it became the first commercially available next-generation sequencing method. The platform represented a massive leap forward in better speed at lower cost by allowing large numbers of DNA fragments to be analysed at the same time, known as mass parallel sequencing. The 454 machines were able to generate reads of about 400 to 500 letters from a million or so beads at the same time, representing a huge boost in capacity. But just as the Sanger method emerged from under the nose of Maxam and Gilbert, there was a challenger just around the corner. Following the success of 454, other next-generation technologies started to come to fruition. The most important is probably a method known as Selexa, which forms the basis of the technology from sequencing giant Illumina. By the mid-1990s, 
Cambridge scientists Shankar Balasubramanian and David Klenerman were working on a way to study the motion of DNA polymerase as it added a single letter onto a growing strand of DNA stuck on the surface. Chatting in the pub and inspired by Cambridge's rich history of innovation in DNA research, they realised that the technique they were using for their rather niche molecular biology research could be turned into a completely new technique for DNA sequencing. Sequencing by Synthesis Technology, or SBS, works by breaking the DNA you want to read into short fragments and adding special adapters onto the ends of each piece. These fragments are then placed in a special glass slide coated with little stretches of DNA known as oligos, which pair up with the adapter sequences and capture the DNA fragments on the slide. Next, there's a clever process that makes millions of identical copies of each DNA fragment, all stuck in close proximity on the slide. After that comes the actual sequencing, where DNA polymerases make a copy of each of these millions of fragments, adding fluorescently labelled bases one at a time, according to the sequence of that fragment. Each of the four bases is labelled with a different colour, emitting a flash of light as it's added that can be detected with a highly sensitive camera. By watching the pattern of flashes, it's then possible to figure out the DNA sequence of each cluster of identical fragments, and then use computer analysis to piece them all together to get the overall full-length sequence you started with. If you want to know more about how this works, there's a video on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. The first Celexa genome analyzer machines came on the market in 2006, and although they were initially only capable of generating pretty short reads, they were improving fast. Illumina snapped up the company in 2007, quickly growing to become the dominant player in the space and currently generating more than 90% of the world's sequencing data. There are now several types of next-generation sequencing technologies commercially available, with differing technical details but similar overall processes that allow thousands or even millions of DNA molecules to be sequenced simultaneously in real time using parallel reactions. Next-generation sequencing lit a rocket under the field of genomics, slashing the cost and time taken to sequence individual genomes from humans or any other species from months and millions down to hours and a few hundred dollars. Next-generation sequencing technology has truly unlocked the power of genomics and transformed the life sciences. So, what's coming next? Despite the enormous advantages and potential of next-generation sequencing, science, as always, marches onwards. We're still creating new ways to read the Book of Life and push forward the frontiers of genetics. One of the most recent advances is nanopore sequencing, which involves threading DNA through a tiny hole in a membrane called a nanopore. As each base passes through the membrane, a tiny electrical signal is generated. This signal is characteristic to each base, so detecting these minute electronic pulses means that we can work out the sequence of DNA passing through the membrane. The technology reached the commercial market in 2014, when Oxford Nanopore released its Minion sequencer. For more on that story, listen to our previous episode, Building an Army of Minions.
Unlike next-generation sequencing technologies like Illumina's, nanopore sequencing can analyse long sections of DNA with no need to fragment it before sequencing, and almost no sample preparation is required. Because no DNA is synthesised in the sequencing process, there's no need to add nucleotides, enzymes or other chemical reagents. As a result, nanopore sequencing dramatically reduces the cost of sequencing and removes the need for a highly equipped laboratory. Oxford Nanopore is now selling sequencers for less than $1,000 that fit in the palm of your hand and plug into your computer so you can analyse DNA quickly and cheaply anywhere in the world. They've been a boon for researchers working out in the field, such as those tracking outbreaks of infectious diseases, including the current COVID-19 pandemic. Other long-read sequencing technologies are also coming through, such as PacBio's smart sequencing technology, the brainchild of Jonas Korlach. Fascinated by the form and function of molecular machines inside cells, Korlach started studying one of the most impressive of them all, DNA polymerase. Aware of the DNA sequencing techniques at the time, which relied on DNA polymerase adding fluorescent nucleotides to large numbers of short fragments of DNA, he started to wonder if he could build a microscope that would enable him to spy directly on DNA polymerase as it added each coloured base to a single strand of DNA, creating an entirely new sequencing technique. This wasn't exactly a practical idea. The best microscopes at the time could visualise nothing smaller than a blob of 500 polymerase molecules, certainly not the single enzyme and DNA strand that Korlach wanted. Luckily for him, he was working in the lab of Watt Webb, who was an expert in high-resolution imaging techniques. Together with Webb and nano-engineers Steve Turner and Harold Craighead, Korlach eventually succeeded, and by 2009, they had published the first iteration of their method. At the heart of smart sequencing is a chip covered in millions of tiny holes. And by tiny, I mean tiny. They're so small that a single molecule of DNA and polymerase can be trapped in there. And they're also so small that light can barely get through. Fluorescently labelled bases are added to the chip each of the four letters labelled with a different colour. As DNA polymerase gets to work copying the DNA strand and a new letter binds, it gives off a flash of coloured light, according to whichever base has just been added. Like with Illumina sequencing, watching the pattern of flashes reveals the underlying sequence of the DNA strand in that spot. But unlike Illumina's technology, Smart sequencing can read much longer single strands of DNA, up to many thousands of letters at a time, scaled up millions of times on each chip. Again, there's a video of how it works on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. Finally, the latest innovation in DNA sequencing takes us another leap forward. This time, instead of improving how we read DNA, scientists are changing where we do it. In December 2020, researchers from MIT reported a method called in-situ sequencing, which integrates sequencing with microscopy to show scientists not only the sequence of DNA, but where it sits within the 3D structure of the cell nucleus. The process involves fixing cells to a glass surface and then amplifying thousands of short segments of DNA at their original location 
using fluorescently labelled bases, each a different colour. The reactions are observed using fluorescence microscopy, giving the scientists a map of the sequences within the cell as they're amplified, pinpointing where they sit within chromosome structures. Although it's a brand new technique, advances that allow us to sequence DNA within cells could give us new opportunities to investigate how the 3D organisation of DNA affects its function and observe structural changes that are associated with ageing and diseases, including cancer and brain disorders. As Fred Sanger said when he was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1980, a knowledge of sequences could contribute much to our understanding of living matter. The progress of DNA sequencing over the past few decades has been tremendous, but there is undoubtedly much more to come as we continue to learn how to read the Book of Life. In the words of Sanger's co-laureate Walter Gilbert, I think the future of science will continue to astound us. That's all for now. We'll be back next time taking a look at the genetics of music. Is musical ability in your genes? Or can you blame being tone deaf on your DNA too? As a musician as well as a scientist, I've been wanting to make this episode for a long time and I can't wait to share it with you. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip. And please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference and it helps more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Katani, with additional research and scripting by Emily Norvang. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo is designed by James Mayle and audio production is by the long-suffering Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.